Okay, so welcome everybody. Welcome to the new episode of the Lacarse Thinkers. And today we have Dr. Tessiar Marshik from the Department of Psychology. We will be talking about hidden biases. Don't believe everything you think, battling bias, misinformation, and pseudoscience. So thanks for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to hear that you're doing this. It's really cool. So. Thank you. So the first thing we want to start with is biases. Uh, are biases conscious or unconscious? Do we know we have biases? Well, the answer to that is that it's, it's both. Um, but most of the time when people, I think in kind of everyday common knowledge of bias, most of the time people are thinking of the conscious bias or deliberate bias or kind of overt and explicit bias that people exhibit. And that's certainly possible. We do see people that are, you know, overtly, um, deliberately biased towards other people. Um, that definitely exists. But most of the bias that I focus on and that what I try to get my students to understand is more implicit and kind of subconscious where we have these beliefs that we don't always necessarily realize we have first um, and that can impact our, our behaviors and our, our ways of interacting with new uh, content in the classroom or other people or, or just our environment. It can impact those behaviors in ways that we don't always recognize or, or realize. Can you give an example of hidden biases we don't realize? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if we're going to elaborate on this one later, but confirmation bias is one of the one of the I think most insidious, most problematic biases that we have, and this is our natural tendency to basically see what we want to see or see what we expect to see. Um, we notice, in other words, we notice when our experiences or information we encounter fit with our previous beliefs. Um, and that makes us feel good and, and we like that. We like to feel like we know what's going on and that we can understand. Um, and that's just naturally we gravitate towards information that confirms what we already believe while at the same time we tend to ignore information or experiences that kind of contradict it. So it's kind of like putting on blinders, right? Only again, sometimes, sometimes you know, as I tell my students, sometimes that is deliberate. You maybe you've had a conversation with somebody and you tell them something they don't want to hear and they're like, la, 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 don't tell me that. I'm going to turn away. You know, I'm going to pretend that I didn't see that. Um, so it can, again, it can be deliberate, but more often than not, we don't realize we're doing it. And so that can lead to a lot of misconceptions like, um, you know, a classic example that I give is this idea that the full moons correlate with um, crazy behavior or that, you know, full moon, uh-oh, crazy things are going to happen. People are going to misbehave. There's going to be more ER trips, et cetera. Um, that's actually been studied. People have looked at that and there is no direct connection between, you know, having a full moon and, and crazy behavior or ER visits. But the reason why that myth continues to persist and why so many people still say things like that is because of confirmation bias. Uh, in other words, we notice because we have it in our heads that full moons cause crazy behaviors. Anytime there's a full moon, we are primed to notice when something crazy happens. And then we say, aha, see, I told you, it's a full moon. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, but we don't notice all the times that it's a full moon and nothing crazy happens. We don't like consciously think to ourselves, wait a minute, it's a full moon out today and nothing crazy happened today. Or vice versa, if there's not a full moon, we don't consciously think, wait a minute, something crazy happened to me today, or these people seem to be acting crazy, but it's not a full moon, right? We don't notice the, the times when that relationship doesn't seem to exist. Um, so that's, again, another reason why that myth persists is just it's it's more noticeable. It stands out to us when we see the connection between those events. Um, and that gives us this false perception that they must be connected in a meaningful, uh, maybe causal way, when in fact that's an illusory correlation. 
So think about my research or even my experiences with industry. Sometimes you just pre-assume some results and then you look for evidence. Yeah. And no matter how small that evidence is, you ignore the 99.99% things you see, which is not behaving this way. I say, that's it. I knew it. Exactly. Right? And that's the hard moment. Yeah. And that can be really problematic with research. That's why, you know, at least in the field of psychology, there's a trend that researchers actually submit their hypotheses uh, like publicly before they ever run their analyses to, to try to prevent them from then going back and changing like, oh, no, 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 this is what I thought we were going to find and, Submit and to a seeing journal? what they want to see. Well, there's different, um, I can't remember exactly uh, what the name of, of the the places that you do that, but it's basically oh, like a okay. public forum where Just you say, for right, for people that are doing research, where it's kind of a way of saying officially ahead of time, this is what we're going to do and this is what we expect to find. Um, and so part of that is, you know, we don't want them to, to just confirm those findings, but we're trying to prevent them from forming hypotheses like after the fact, like, okay, we actually found this. So let me go back and change my, you know, change what I thought I was going to find as a way of, of showing that confirmation. We want them to be more open to admitting, in other words, if the results don't actually go the way that they thought they were going to go. Um, and so that's one way that we try to, we try to hold each other accountable to that is, well, no, you told us you thought it was going to be this. So, you know, you can't change that now. Now you have to explain, well, why is it, you know, that you think you found these contradictory findings? That's nice. So it's almost like you're fighting the hidden biases in scientific research, which right. is exactly the right approach to do, right? Yeah, researchers, experts, we're, we're not immune to the same, the same kind of biases. Um, we have deliberate steps involved, again, with, with planning studies and trying to be more systematic in how we analyze the research and things like blind peer review before we publish our results. We have those steps in place to try to prevent that from coming out. Um, but it's absolutely, I mean, being human beings, right, we have this tendency to be biased and we are all vulnerable to that just as by nature of being a human. Uh, it's not just a matter of like how smart you are. Okay, so that's actually lead to my next question. Mm -hmm. Can we avoid them completely? Number two, are they always good or are they always bad? Or are they kind of like mixed? Uh, so, yeah. So, I, I guess, I mean, the way I would answer both those questions and what I try to help my students understand is that bias are, biases are natural. Um, they're, again, fundamental based on the way our brains work. Um Really, what a bias is, is it's a mental shortcut. It's a heuristic is the term that we use in psychology. It's our way of processing a lot of information that we encounter uh, in an efficient manner. And it's actually necessary because we can't consciously focus on every single detail of our environment all the time and critically think and weigh information from all these different sources and all these different senses that we're, we're being bombarded with constantly. We can't focus on all of that. So we rely on our previous experiences as a way of taking shortcuts. Right? It's kind of like an assumption. Okay, in light of what I have previously learned or what I've previously experienced, I can make a guess, right, about what what is happening in this new in this new experience that I'm having, um, and in that way, they're they're actually really beneficial because, again, logistically, we just we we don't always have the time, nor do we literally have the mental resources to think very critically and carefully about every single experience we have all the time. Um, so in that way, you know, you could consider them to be. Uh, a necessary part of functioning in, in everyday life, but also beneficial in that it, it makes us quicker thinkers, more efficient thinkers. The downside, though, of making those quick assumptions is that 
it also increases the likelihood that we make mistakes and that we don't pay attention to details that are actually really important. And again, if you tie that in with like confirmation bias specifically, that means we are naturally primed once again to see what we want to see and to see what we expect to see. And it makes it harder for us to notice when we might be wrong. Um, and that's what leads to things like, you know, long-term prejudice attitudes towards certain groups of people, um, which can lead then to discrimination. But it can also make us um, just resistant to, to learning and changing in general because we're taking these shortcuts all the time and we don't necessarily recognize how the beliefs that we have might not be accurate or at least might not be the whole picture, if that makes sense. That's interesting. So uh, I'm trying to make the analogy here from engineering point of view. So is it fair for me to say we have two types of model in our brain? One is conscious, which requires more resource, which is more accurate. We save it for more important stuff. Mm -hmm. And there are some things we have done thousands of times before, which doesn't matter that much. And we have a simplified model, which requires only a little resource. We don't even notice we're doing the model. Uh -huh. We just jump, jump to the conclusion right away. But this helps us to make a lot of quick decisions. And most of the time, they're actually correct. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a reinforcement on that thing. Unless we notice, OK, this one basically hit a wall. Right. Now conscious takes over and reinvestigate the whole thing. Yeah. It's like a, a allocation of resource things. Seems like we can only afford so much conscious resource and a lot of the, everything else will be the hidden bias or yep, what we call that's exactly it. And there's been other authors like Daniel Kahneman has a book, uh, he's an economist, uh, called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And that's what he focuses on is describing those two different processing systems, the conscious, deliberate, careful system, um, and then this automatic, more intuitive, um, oftentimes more emotional system that's more, again, automatic and not necessarily outside of our awareness. Yeah. Uh, these models, the unconscious ones, uh, natural or was it nurtured? It's a little bit of both. So again, part of it is uh, this this natural function that we have just based on our, how our brains work. Again, our brains are programmed to take these shortcuts. And we see that even in infancy, we are in some ways born with this, these biases. So uh, for example, uh, we know that babies have a natural bias to prefer faces from other forms of stimuli in their environment. So if we present you know, pictures of faces with, with inanimate objects or just patterns, babies will spend significantly more time looking at those faces. And because we see that in early infancy, the argument is that that's, that's hardwired, that's primed. And actually, on that note, not only do we see it in early infancy, but there's been some newer research that suggests that that's happening even prenatally. No. So researchers have been able to take um, lights and shine them through a pregnant woman's abdomen and in some versions, it's hard to describe without a picture, but in some versions, those lights are organized so that it resembles more of a face. Eyes so it would have like three eyes. dots. Yeah, like three dots for the eyes and the nose, and it would be presented that way. And then in other, uh, in other versions, they're presented randomly, or maybe that would be inverted to where like one circle, one dot was at the top and the other two were at the bottom. And what they've actually found in... Um, I'm pretty sure they looked at six months uh, prenatally or gestational age and beyond. And what they found is that those uh, fetuses would actually orient themselves and turn themselves towards the, the lights that looked more like a face than the other forms of stimuli. Good question here. Do, are their eyes open? They can open their eyes in the womb. Um, the vision is actually the least developed sense at birth because for the most part, they're developing in, in total darkness, right, in the woman's abdomen. But it is possible for some light to get through if it's shown 
directly through, you know, the woman's abdomen. So like if a pregnant woman was sunbathing, it's possible that some of that light would permeate uh, the uterine environment. And so with these studies, again, they literally take, um, I, I guess I don't know the technological terms, but like lasers that they can uh, make sure the light is getting through. And again, that's how they, they study the fetus's responses to that. So my point is, right, so we see this tendency even before birth that babies are just naturally biased to prefer stimuli in their environment. Um, but then immediately after birth, right, that starts to interact with their experiences. So we know, yes, all babies have a bias for faces over other objects. But then that bias becomes a little bit more specialized where babies start to prefer faces that they are more used to looking at. Um, which are often faces that look more like them. So white babies develop a preference for white faces, um, especially in a culture that's dominated by whiteness. Um, you know, they're, they're used to that. They're exposed to that. That's what they prefer to look at. And that's where you start to see very early on the interaction between this natural, you know, biological tendency and then how is that being um, uh, further reinforced or, or influenced by what they're exposed to in their environment. The movies you see, the pictures you see on, mm -hmm. and the neighborhood you see, the school you see, and everything. Right, right. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's it's a little bit of both. Yes, we are born with these tendencies. And again, uh, I want to go back to this idea that our brains, we just, our, our brains are amazing. They're incredible at how much we can do, you know, how much we are capable of doing. But they're not, they're not perfect. We can only focus on so much at a time. And so... In that way, from a biological standpoint, these shortcuts are also necessities. Um, and it goes back to like Dan Simon's research and the invisible gorilla, if you've ever seen that video or those attention tests where you know there's a team playing basketball and you're asked to count how many passes the one team makes. And then in the middle of the video, a moonwalking gorilla or bear, it depends on the version, goes through, passes through literally the middle of the video. And so viewers are focused on it. They're, they're all watching this video. Um, but that because they're focused on counting the passes, most people actually miss this gorilla or this, this whatever it is um, that walks through the middle of the scene. And that's, you know, one of those demonstrations of, yeah, we, we literally cannot process everything that we sense and everything that we counter. And that is also an, an innate biological process. Um, but then again, with experience, we learn to focus more on certain details than on others. And that's where some of that learned bias can come into play. That's, that's nice because if we were born with a certain kind of, instead of saying bias, let's just say pre-wired model to perceive the world. Mm -hmm. After all these generations, generations of natural selection, that must give us some kind of like a survival survival uh, advantage mm -hmm. for those kind of shortcuts, right? Yeah. So definitely hidden bias has its beneficial part. Right, and yeah. that's the idea. Even when it comes to like babies' preferences for faces, the argument is that that's a survival mechanism, that we have evolved to prefer faces because faces are more important to babies' survival than inanimate objects. Faces are the people that they rely on, you know, to have their basic needs met and things like that. So it's a more important source of information. And in that way, that's, that's also a survival mechanism. Yeah. So since it's a combination of nature and nurture, how do we nurture a certain kind of hidden bias we know it's harmful as an individual? Yeah, well, so it goes back again to your question, or I want to step back to your question about um, are they good or bad? 
I think that's where I was going. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, they're not on their on their own. Biases are not inherently problematic because they do have this uh, this advantage. And actually, can I take one more step back? Selective attention is inherently linked to this too, and that's another adva- another way that it's advantageous. Um, it's good that we're able to you know focus on the details and the most important things and ignore the distractions. So, like in a classroom, um, it's good that a student is not focused on at least hopefully not focused on what their neighbor is doing or the color of the paint on the walls or the the clothing of their instructor. It's good that they're focused on thinking about at least again in theory. Some people struggle with this more than others, but that they're focused on the content and they can ignore all these extraneous details. But it's that same, and, and in that way, selective attention is critical and really important for our, again, not only survival, but everyday functioning. But it's that same beneficial thing that's also potentially dangerous, again, if it means that we're missing out on, on other details or if it prevents us from seeing people as, as individuals as opposed to making these quick assumptions. Um, so, I'm sorry, your question was, can we... Can we nurture certain kind of harmful hidden biases. But with your explanation, I think we're not nurturing the mechanic of the hidden bias, but more about the content. Right. So we're going to have these biases no matter what. There's no, oh, so that, I'm sorry, that was the question I want to get to because you mentioned before, can we completely overcome these? And the answer to that is no. Just Mm -hmm. by virtue of being a human being, we will always have biases. Our brains absolutely have to take these shortcuts on a daily basis. But where we can, where intervention comes into is getting, again, to look at to what extent are certain beliefs or biases that we have actually beneficial or not, and in what ways can they be harmful. Um, Even positive biases have the potential to be harmful, right? So it's not just negative biases or negative stereotypes, for example, that can be harmful. Even the positive ones can be harmful. Um, and that's where, yeah, we, we can make a difference either for better or worse, depending on what it is that we're exposed to and what it is that, that is being taught. Interesting, because I'm thinking about driving, right? Mm-hmm. Driving, at first when you learn about driving, definitely it's a conscious uh, process. You need to know, you need to notice a lot of things until you start actually, your brain start to capture the model and make it more and more simplified, mm-hmm. more and more familiar, and eventually you stop noticing your driving yep. unless something happened, right? Right. And so, again, the good thing, like when you're first learning how to drive, it takes a ton of mental energy and you've got to remember, you know, all those steps, which one's the brake, which one's the gas, which way do I turn the switch to, you know, put my left turn signal on compared to my left, where's the windshield wipers and how do I adjust my mirrors and pay attention to everything? You know, it really, and it's, it's hard to focus on all those things, but exactly as you said, the more experience you get with that, the more automatic it becomes, the easier it becomes, and that frees up, not only it's less stressful, right, but it also also frees up mental resources where we can do other things where we could you know have a conversation at the same time as we're driving or where we could listen to a talk radio at the same time that we're driving whereas initially maybe nope I got to turn the radio off like I have to full attention on everything that I'm doing uh, but again so it's beneficial in that way but then it's also potentially dangerous is because driving is one of those things that maybe we rely a little too much on automatic processing and you I think you hit the gas <laughs> instead of the brake for once out of a million times. Mm-hmm. You created you created an accident, and people will say, "Why are you so stupid? You don't know the difference." The, now the question becomes: Actually, it's in my back. I don't even notice. Right, or we're just overconfident, you know, in our ability to. Oh, I don't really have to think about this. I can have a conversation on my phone, or be texting and driving, or be eating, etc. Right? We tend to think, "Oh yeah, I've got this. I don't need to think about it." And then we actually you know, miss, again, important details when it comes to driving, like 
whether their car in front of us is braking or whether somebody's crossing the road. And then that can obviously result in in negative outcomes, too. And I think, you know, with that analogy, I, I always give the example of I think everybody can relate to like driving home or driving somewhere sometime and getting there and being like, oh, wow, like having that moment of I don't even remember really driving here today because you're so used to taking, you know, like for me, it's the drive to and from work. I'm so used to doing that, that sometimes, uh, you know, I worry like, oh, I, I barely remember driving here today. It's crazy that you have at least 20 roads involved. You have like, I don't know, 15 turns in the process. Yeah. Somehow I don't remember any of them. Yeah. You don't even remember the traffic light and somehow right. you magically obeyed mm -hmm. the rule. Yeah. Interesting. So let's take things this way. Let's be more specific about confirmation Mm -hmm. biases how do we notice we have those kind of things and how do we know it's doing harm and finally maybe it's three questions <laughs> and finally how we battle them right okay so remind me if i forget to address yep. one of those Let's if go i go with too the first far one. Nah. um so yeah that's the really tricky part so you know we started this by talking about is bias implicit and subconscious or is it explicit and conscious and the answer is both um, but again, it's much easier to notice the the explicit stuff, you know, the overt forms of bias that we have. It's also much easier to notice when other people are being biased compared to yourself. Right? It's much easier to point out flaws in other people's thinkings than it is to turn that around and say, whoa, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong, too. Um, and so the implicit stuff, it you know, it requires some. So, some different methods. You can't just ask somebody, are you biased implicitly? Because the minute you ask them, you're asking them to consciously reflect on something that is supposed to be subconscious. And so, you know, there are, there are different ways to get at it. But one of, uh, you know, a, a great uh, example of a test that you can take is the IAT, the Implicit, Implicit Association Test. So this is a, actually a series of tests. There's a whole bunch of them based on different uh, content or different, different areas, different types of biases um, through Harvard that researchers have been, gosh, now it's been at, at least a couple decades that they've been doing this research, where essentially they test how quickly you can associate certain terms with certain, for example, group level identities. And based on that, um, that's supposed to give insight into your subconscious biases. So for example, they'll have you associate pictures. Um, so as I mentioned, there's a bunch of them. So there's one for like race and ethnicity. There's one for gender. There's one for weight bias or political bias, religious bias. There's a whole bunch of them. And so what they'll do is they will essentially, again, test your ability to make associations. So they'll, they'll tell you, for example, we want you to pair the idea of being white or white people with positive words, and we want you to pair white people with negative words. And there's different... Uh, forms are different points at the task. So the first one will have you pair white with positive. So every time you see a white face with a positive word, you need to click this button. If it's a white face with a negative word, you need to click this other button. And we'll see how quickly you can make those associations. And then we'll do the same thing with like black faces and positive and negative words. And so for an example of what they found is that many people, it will be, they'll be much faster at association, at associating white faces with positive words than they will with association black face or with associating black faces with positive words. And it'll actually be the flipped uh, where they're actually much quicker at recognizing a black face when it's paired with a negative word compared to the opposite. Um, and so what that suggests is that implicitly we naturally are more accustomed to associating whiteness with positive attributes and blackness with negative attributes. Just want to interrupt here a little bit. So basically the, uh, the foundation is uh, anything involves unconscious is faster than anything involves with conscious. 
Yeah, so it right. goes that back to those two systems. So the conscious faster, one faster is much more deliberate and you know careful and implicit are these quick assumptions that we're making based on you know the wealth of our cumulative experiences up until that point. So is it fair for me to say this kind of process is actually the, the un unconscious one will do everything first, but yeah. then the conscious will actually step in exactly right and alter that thing for special cases hopefully it will, right hopefully it will step in or sometimes it will step in but many times subconsciously we're we're making these automatic judgments without even without even realizing it so that test the implicit association test through the, uh, harvard harvard's project implicit again it's based on reaction times and the faster your reaction time the more easy it is for your brain to think that way which implies that that's the that's like your starting assumption um, the longer it takes for you to make that association, the implication is, oh, well, because that's because it contradicts kind of your natural uh, prototype or your, your implicit belief. I shouldn't say natural because that's a little misleading because it is learned and acquired over time, but your implicit belief about something. Um, and the tricky thing is, is that the implicit stuff oftentimes disagrees with the explicit stuff. And so that's why you need a more clever way. You can't just ask someone, are you biased? Are you racist? Because most people will say no. I mean, some people will admit, yes, I'm, I'm able to admit this. And yes, and some people are will flaunt that, you know. But for the majority of people, it's no, I don't I don't think so. But then this these tests show otherwise that even if you say that, well, you know, that might be consciously true. But on the subconscious level, it's actually harder for you to think in this way compared to this other way. I don't know how well I'm describing that. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so you know you, now let's say, assume you already know you have confirmation uh, biases. Mm -hmm. How do we do something about it? Well, if so we that, already so know it's harmful, for example, like it's like racist. Right. Well, right. so the first step is is first uncovering it and, yeah. and acknowledging that all of us have as human beings have these biases. Again, it's virtue of being a human being. You are not more or less biased necessarily than than somebody else, that all of us have these. And if you're not biased towards one thing or if you don't show a strong bias in one domain, um, that doesn't mean you couldn't show a strong bias in another one. So as simple as it sounds, that acknowledgement part is actually really, really important and a huge obstacle for a lot of people who just want to say, nope, I'm not biased because in my mind, I know that um, people of color are just as good as white people. Therefore, you know, I'm not biased. Um, again, we oftentimes find that discrepancy between what people consciously say and what people um, subconsciously believe. And actually, another way that we can test that is just think, you know, if I were to ask you, picture, um, uh, what do you picture when you picture scientists? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Old. Don't think about it too old. much. First thing old. that comes to mind. Old, old people. Old people. Okay, yeah. so old person, um, if I asked you to draw a scientist, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Usually no hair. no hair. Okay, so that's your prototype, right? That's yeah. your yeah. bias for what a scientist is. Now, if I asked you, are all scientists old? Do all scientists have no hair? No, consciously you know that. But the point is your immediate picture for what a scientist, right, that's your bias. That's your starting point. That's the assumption. Um, when we ask kids, this has been a study that we've been doing for decades, kids to draw scientists, um, most of the time they draw a male scientist, so an older male, right, which implies that they are more biased to think of males as being more likely to be scientists than, than women. Again, if I were to consciously ask them, well, is it possible for a woman to be a scientist, most of them consciously would say yes. Um, that's possible. We recognize that. But the point is, just like that implicit association test, we have that starting point that we're working with. Just like if I said, you know, what do you picture when you picture uh, a typical American? Or what do you picture when you think of a minivan driver? 
or a Justin Bieber fan or, you know, insert whatever. Most people have no problem immediately coming up with something. That is your implicit assumption, right? And now, again, if I asked you to think about it a little bit more, most people would say, well, yeah, you know, I re recognize lots of different people drive minivans. They're not all middle-aged soccer moms or what you know that's my stereotype or whatever it is most people can recognize that it's not even that when you picture the justin bieber fan for example mm -hmm. i will also be shocked if i see somebody clearly doesn't look like a justin bieber fan mm -hmm. which means i probably pictured what justin bieber fan looks like exactly i'll be shocked like really right the <laughs> fact that you have that response like oh yeah. really you listen to that that is again more evidence that you have this implicit bias um, so again, I, I can't emphasize awareness and acknowledgement as being the most important first step. Um, because then that's what allows you to have those moments where you, you just said, oh, why am I surprised that somebody is a Justin Bieber fan? Oh, it's because I usually assume this about that type of person. And then that can lead to a little bit more critical reflection of, of having those moments where we pause and say, wait a minute, why is it that I automatically assume that? Or why is it that I thought that? And then that critical self-reflection can lead to us, you know, taking that step back and making it a little bit more deliberate then and asking ourselves, you know, what are the consequences of, of believing that? And in what ways might that be impacting the way that I interact with other people and even the way that I, that uh, my own behaviors towards myself. So, you know, getting back to like that scientist example um, the fact that we have this bias towards immediately associate, associating men more with science than women, um, that leads to, you know, more men per pursuing science than women. That leads to discrimination in employment of male scientists compared to women scientists. Um, that can limit, again, not only how we uh, view other people or judge other people, but then also for myself, if my association as a woman is that, well, science is more of a man thing, um, that can actually deter me from pursuing a science-related uh, career. And again, I might not be conscious of the fact that I'm doing that, but that has been tested through research where we show that, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. These biases, these underlying assumptions, even when, they, even when the explicit beliefs are different and maybe the opposite, these underlying assumptions still have power. So like discrimination in employment, um, Again, when we ask employers, do you think that you're being fair in, in hiring practices when it comes to gender or when it comes to race, most employers will say yes. And I think most employers are sincere about that, especially in today's age. You know, Not only do they realize that they can get in trouble um, for being discriminatory, but I think most people you know, genuinely want to be fair and you know, think that they are logical. Um, but we'll take those same people and you know, we will give them uh, so, you know, an example of how we test this, we'll give them identical applications. The only difference is, you know, the name. And one of the names is a little bit more ethnic sounding than another, or one of them is a female and one of them is a male. And what we find is at the end of the day, um, the males get more job offers, or depending on the field, or, or the white people end up getting more job offers, which again is another uh, signal to us that regardless of what we're saying ex explicitly or what we think explicitly, these implicit beliefs are having more of an effect on our behaviors. So it's, again, studies like that that I think can promote this awareness. And then, okay, so now that we know, or now that we might know that, let's say I'm an employer and that I'm discriminating, what steps can I take to prevent that from happening? Um, now we're limited, right? So if at we're the, doing- At the individual level. Right. Yeah. Well, at the individual and at the institutional level, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we're somewhat limited in that. Like, ideally, we would want to 
not so at, at like the initial stage with applications, maybe we say don't report your gender or your race, and maybe we're going to, you know, evaluate them blindly without names, without any of that demographic information. That's one step that we could take to potentially avoid, you know, making a judgment, making an implicit judgment based on gender or based on race. Um, and so that could be a starting point. Again, it gets a little bit difficult when it comes to employment because sometimes you can still figure those things out. So if it, you know, at some point in their resume, it says, oh, I'm a member of the American Men Association of something. Okay, we might not have been deliberately looking for that, but we see that and we realize. Or if it says I'm a member of the Association for Black Psychologists, again, that we might get that information. And then if we're doing an in-person interview, obviously we can't, you know, that's not something that people can necessarily hide, right? So sometimes we can blind ourselves to those things and sometimes we can't. And that's when we just have to be extra careful to have, you know, open and honest conversations about things like that. So oh, self-reflection and uh, introspection is probably very critical in this kind of process. Absolutely. Which is a very, very rare value <laughs> for people to have. And also when you are talking about the, the employment from an institution point of view, I start to understand why people want robotic HR or mm -hmm. like robotic judges even, right, for yeah. court. It's just like, hey, totally fair. Don't ask me reason. You right. may have some reasons, but I clearly just follow the law because I'm a robot. I don't understand your background in terms of color, race, mm -hmm. gender, whatever. And also another thing that I realized during the conversation is that can that thing partially explain why a lot of people say one thing and do another? Oh, yeah, all the right? time. That's almost like, yeah, you claim you are this, but clearly you are doing this. Right. And... And so that's another thing that we can attend to is like really testing ourselves, you know, on how much do my behaviors actually align with the values that I espouse or the beliefs that I actually have. Right? If I say, again, that I, I treat people all the same, if I look at my, let's say, social media connections and all of my people are white or all of my friends are white, you know, what what might that actually be suggesting, you know, or if. Um, uh, whether it's social media connections or my friends, you know, if all of my friends are white, again, does that, is that necessarily mean that I have negative feelings towards members of other groups? Maybe not necessarily, but, you know, that's one piece, one more piece of evidence that we can use to be a little bit more, okay, maybe, you know, these things are less likely to match up what I actually believe or what I want to believe versus, you know, that's very what interesting. I do. Yeah. It's almost like Piaget's uh, theory that is that like you need to unite your action and your mind together mm -hmm. to stay out of confusion, mm -hmm. and that will make you actually. It's almost like you're using your ego to unite your conscious and unconscious together, to yeah. be to be unified, and uh, and have a stronger self, right? It's almost like like that. Then you can you constantly continue this process and adjust yourself. You could never get rid of the biases, right? But you could you could first be aware of it, of it every mm -hmm. time and shift yourself through the past to find a balance. Mm. That's 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 really nice, but it requires hard work. Yeah, and it, I think it requires other people too. Again, it's really hard to get out of our own minds in order to see our biases. That's why, um, you know, Banaji, the book that I recommended is is called Blind Spot: Hidden Biases of Good People. We have not only do we have all these biases, but we have blind spot bias, which is again that inability to see our own biases. So, yeah, we need to be more critically self-reflective, but we also need to be more open to receiving feedback from other people and looking for those cues from from other people um, 
instead of being, you know, immediately defensive, if somebody says, hey, that thing you said is racist and immediately trying to justify and explain, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Like, let's just sit with that for a minute and, and think about how maybe it maybe it was and how that's absolutely possible, even if that's not the way I see myself or that's not the way you want to see yourself. So conversation is a very key element in this mm-hmm. kind of things. And, uh, I and can listening. Personally, I can personally feel that in nowadays maybe the hidden bias is so strong that it's really hard to have some kind of conversations at a certain level simply mm-hmm. because people just shut their brain down or up to a certain point they start to actually start to attack people instead of their opinion, mm-hmm. right? Those kind of things. Another thing which while I was reading Hidden Brain, the book you recommended me, um, which gave me a, a really nice insight is something we don't notice, for example, like gender gap. Like before, there are all kinds of arguments. P- women got paid lower, fine. Then people come here and say, okay, actually mine, play, uh, mine takes a different kind of job. There's like concrete mm-hmm. workers. Do you have women there? That's why they got, pay, pay, got paid higher. Right. Fine. So both opinions make sense until you finally have the study in, in the book. They have a transgender people. You basically have a same person who transferred from women right. to men with exactly the skill set, with exactly everything except for gender. So now we have really good samples. Mm-hmm. And they described how they were treated significantly different. Yeah. That's when you start to notice, oh, when I was a male, I never noticed how right. hard. I thought I got everything because of, of my competence, because of my skills and everything. But now I just keep everything the same, became a transgender, mm-hmm. and suddenly everything changed. Yeah. And that, again, it points to that blind spot bias that we have and its connection to privilege when you are in ha- when you have some privilege identity. And there's all sorts of different identities that we could, you know, label as, well, here's the more privileged version of that compared to the less privileged version. Well, for most of us, we think of us as healthy people uh-huh. from the beginning. Right. Like, I, I'm not sick. I don't have cancer. Mm-hmm. Even for that, you took it for granted, right? Right. Um, and that makes it, you're absolutely right, that makes it a lot harder to see. And what you described, too, is how, again, consciously, we, we do all of these justifications and rationalizations to try to explain how, no, that's not actually what's going on here. The reason women are underpaid is because of X, Y, and Z. And, okay, yeah, you can point to those things. And are, is there some accuracy to that? Some, many times, yeah, there is. Not always, but many times there is. But again, you're still ignoring the underlying issues that 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 is hard for a lot of people to accept is that what comes down to this bias that we have. Um, And yeah, that's where, again, examples like that in research studies can be particularly beneficial in kind of separating all of those factors and saying, look, we isolated all these other things. And this bias still operates in a way that leads to significant differences in people's in people's experiences. That's really interesting because I like his metaphor about swimming right when, when you are when the undercurrent is helping you swimming you, be, you feel yeah. like i'm a really good swimmer instead mm-hmm. of saying there was an undercurrent but when you sw- swim against the undercurrent you start to feel like that's how helpless i then am then you get it yeah yeah and uh, i want the worrisome part is actually not only the people who are in the privileged position don't feel it even for the people who are yeah. on the other side also don't feel it right like yeah. Yeah, I'm a woman, so this is what I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. I should be in this situation. Yeah, one of the most surprising, and it can be really, you know, hard to to cope with or kind of disturbing information that people get about themselves with, like the IAT tests, is that many times women will find that they have a bias in favor of men. Many times, you know, black individuals will find that they also have a bias that favors white people. And that really is, you know, that's a that's a hard thing to 
to reconcile it or understand about yourself. How is it that I could be disparaging towards myself in that way without necessarily realizing it? But it's because it, it, it's, you know, another part about biases that's really critical to understand is they are a product of the culture that we live in. So again, yes, some of it is just based on these natural limitations of our of our of our ways of thinking and our, our brain's laziness, right? But the details of those biases, that's absorbed and learned through a wealth of cultural experiences, again, from the time that we're little, uh, accumulation of those experiences. So somebody who has that bias, again, it's not that they are inherently a bad person, right? It's not that they developed that bias entirely on their own and they decided, I'm going to think negatively about this other group, whatever it might be. It's that's the message that our broader culture has communicated to them. Um, that's interesting because when I say kids, right, they're saying that white kids tend to recognize white kids more and black kids tend to wha- uh, recognize black kids more. But eventually, when they grow a little bit older, you find actually both white and black kids start to actually take privilege towards white people. Right. And that's right. exactly what the culture is doing right. with, again, like the movie and the, co- the book. Exactly. What else. are you exposed yeah. to? Well, repeatedly, we're exposed through, you know, not only the historical figures that we learn about and the very white-centered history that we learn about, um, which is its own issue, you know. But then again, look at modern leaders and people in position of power and executives and um, who's in the who's on the media, who dominates, you know, movies and TV shows and news anchors, and it tends to be white people. So it's over time. I mean, it, I really think you you can't help but have this white bias growing up in the culture that we live in today, right? Because it permeates everything. Another thing I was thinking about from an engineering point of view, right? Let's say my brain is trying to develop a simple model which will work fast for a scientist. Mm-hmm. I need an image. Mm-hmm. So as long as more than 70% or even more than 60% scientists are male and 40% are female, which is not a pr- much bigger difference, I'm still going to take male. Mm-hmm. For, because for a model, you just need to pick one. Right. And you always pick with the highest probability. Right. No matter how significant that thing is, which creates trouble like 99 towards 1, but even... S- 51 towards 49, our brain will always pick the mm-hmm. 51. Mm-hmm. Or at least so, we have that tendency. Or logically, it, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, okay, well, best guess more. is this. It's the truth. Yeah. Right. But then it's really difficult to actually have a, a, a right model. Yeah. The, the, what should really happen is actually constantly revisit your model. Yeah. Whenever you make a decision. Well, and I try to make it, it's, you know, it's not just about the numbers that matter, like whether or not a stereotype actually hat like statistically does apply to the majority of people in in one group so like again when you think of american if you think of a white person well yeah technically at this point in time i think pick one. It's 60 percent yeah. of people are white so that is i guess the best guess right, but it kind of it misses the point that it's still you're still likely to make mistakes it's still problematic to start with that assumption that all americans are white or that you know whatever whatever it might be it still leaves you vulnerable to making mistakes. And then there also is this issue, like you said, you need to constantly revisit that that number. Um, yeah, because it's also a lot of people say, like, if the white model is wrong, the black model is right. No. Right, right. <laughs> right. And there are yeah. many times that, again, we have these assumptions where we think it applies to the majority of people when, quite frankly, we, we're just totally wrong mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Um so again, logically, it makes sense from an efficiency of processing information standpoint. It, you know, it makes sense why we do that, and we could see how that could be helpful in some cases. 
But at the end of the day, we still need to remind ourselves and constantly kind of do that check of, okay, this might be true sometimes, but that doesn't mean it's true. It's true all the time. Then I want to bring this up a little bit then. Now let's step away from the individual side, from the society side or institutional mm -hmm. side, or even like uh, governmental side or nationwide, right? Um, with the era of big data, like the IAT test you said, mm -hmm. instead of doing the IAT test to, to find people's biases, I can do an IAT test, a similar type of thing by how you click different mm -hmm. news yeah. online. And because the computer is so advanced that I can track a large group of people and try to identify their hidden biases, and I can make a decision to adjust it towards a certain kind of goal, no, no matter it's evil or or, justice, or potentially or good. you think yeah. it's justice uh -huh. as an yeah. engineer, right? Yeah. Or as a company. Um, that's incredible power. Yeah. And that's Are you worried? Absolutely. I mean with with social media and even just like Google searches are also governed by algorithms that try to predict what you are most likely to want, what kind of information you want based on past searches. So the, there are these algorithms that are figuring that out. Targeted advertising on on Facebook, right, or on, on other forms of social media, as you said. Video games. And it's based, anytime, yeah, it's yeah. based on what you've clicked on. And again, on the one side, you could argue, oh, that's really cool. Like, yeah, please tell me more about these products that are in line with my interests and what I do. So it's also almost like you're not looking for the evidence for hidden biases now uh -huh. the hidden the, the evidence will come to you yeah well and that only increases the risk of things like confirmation bias and echo chambers that we surround ourselves with other people that think like us and we start develop to, to develop this misperception that everybody thinks like us or that again everything is a certain way if we're only getting exposed to certain kinds of news stories or you know we it, it can absolutely create a very narrow view or perception of what the rest of the world is actually like and, uh, and of our reality. I mean, that was in part, I don't know too many details of, of the Cambridge Analytica scandal that, you know, was that was one of the main concerns is, whoa, we're selling all this data and what are people actually doing with this? What they were trying to do is actually Facebook uh, posts, uh, campus, campus analytics, uh, Cambridge Analytics actually went into their Facebook and tried to extract to predict their big five. Mm -hmm. And after that, they find uh, during research they actually find people who are high in openness and low in conscientiousness tend to lean to the left, mm -hmm. and people who are low in conscientiousness and high in, uh, who are low in openness but high in conscientiousness tend to lean to the right, mm -hmm. and then they start reinforce news on that. Yeah, and so again, I, I think it goes without saying the the dangers of that. If you're only exposed to articles or news stories that confirm your beliefs, then again, it it it, it polarizes people and increases the likelihood, again, that we have these very narrow, um, potentially unrealistic views of, of reality. And that's that's scary, right? We already have this tendency to see what we want to see. But now we have corporations, companies, potentially governments um, that are trying to, to take advantage of that bias, right, and get us to think even more uh, in certain ways. Is, this, is it similar to, like, for example, like mar marketing? Oh yeah, and also the same with uh, yeah. new term terminology, psychoeconometrics psycho or psychoeconomy. Uh huh. Yeah, or behavioral economics. That's basically psychology applied to economics. Yeah, I mean marketers, advertisers—they've been doing that for for years, appealing to to people's biases. So you've got like, I don't know, as a ex simple example, you've got the cigarette companies 
for decades, you know, making associations with like their product and manliness or um, beer companies, you know, like Corona is all about find your happy place on the beach. And, you know, if you drink this, you're going to be peaceful and relaxed and calm and I don't know, sex and, and products. That's another common one. Like, oh, it's all the sexy people that drink this or that use this product or that do, you know, go to this place. Um, like they've been manipulating people in that way and getting us to draw these associations and make these automatic associations for years. Um, but yeah, there's, there's all sorts of clever ways that, that people, uh, manipulate us because we, you know, the only specific bias that I've, that I've mentioned or named, well, I guess I've named blind spot bias and confirmation bias, but there are dozens and dozens of different biases that we have as, as people that marketers have been. So do you feel like the, the society as a whole in general, we're not talking about special cases, but in general, the trend, are they helping to reinforce those kind of biases? Or are they trying to actually help to remove those kind of harmful biases? I think it's both, but I think it's more the former, that there's reinforcing it for particular Purpo purpose and agendas. Right, whether it's, again, an advertiser trying to get you to buy their product um, or whether it's certain political groups or lobbies, you know, that are trying to get you to to take their side, basically. So is it fair for me to say to, to, to battle those kind of confirmation biases is more leaning towards the individual responsibility? Um, yeah, I think it has to start there, right? Okay. It starts with the individual and then slowly but surely kind of branching out and getting more people on, on board and demanding more of, uh, like... I mean, I don't know if it's fair to demand more of our advertisers because they're like, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a... You, yeah, that's capitalism, right? Right. I mean, that's consistent. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think there are inherent problems. Personally, that I, don't, I don't like some of that. I, th I think that is problematic that they're exploiting basically people's weaknesses to, to get them to, to buy things or to do things that aren't necessarily good for them. Um, I do think there's some inherent flaws in that, but you're right. That's kind of inherent in the capitalist society that we live in. But when it comes to like, um, I don't know, politicians, I, I think it's important that we demand more of them. And like currently, and, and this isn't just my opinion, but I think we actually have this environment where we force our politicians to kind of be more polarized and one-sided as opposed to being more open-minded where they are, are willing to say, well, I understand, you know, the evidence on both sides and let's be careful not to only, only report this type of information, but let's consider how that relates with this other source of information. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations with, with at least the political discourse that happens, is not just politicians, but with political discourse amongst people is that we do the same thing to each other, right? Is we have this mentality of, nope, this is what I believe, and I'm only going to argue this one side, and, and I'm only going to present data that fits my, my perspective. Um, and we don't, I mean, it goes back to like the conversations that we're having with people. Sometimes we think we're having a conversation, but what really happens is we're just yelling over each other, like, this is what I believe. And then you have the other person, this is what I believe. And here's all my facts and here's all my facts. On, and there's never that, like, you're not really listening or there's not any meeting of the minds. And wait a minute, let's actually respond to each other. And you made this point and here's how that relates to what I think and vice versa to where we could actually, you know, potentially have a more honest, I think, discussion of whatever the, the topic is or whatever the issue is. And so, again, I, I think that's an individual thing, but I, I think it, it 
we need that to happen more than just the individual level. It necessarily requires um, those conversations with other people. It's interesting because if you think about politi politicians, right, they almost become a projection of a group of people's hidden bias and uh, yeah. kind of give them a reflection like, yes, this is a very powerful evidence that your hidden biases is true. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And then doesn't become easy to vote. Now the it's just a matter of who got the bigger group. Right, right. And again, we I think I, I'm not a political scientist, so I don't I don't know if some of my colleagues would they I'm sure they would have We're more to say. On podcasts, right. So. Okay. So <laughs> so I'm just putting that disclaimer out there. Yeah. But I think we for at least in our current political system and the, the trends in it is we force our even politicians by the time we get to that point of voting is that they are much more polarized and we we force them to say things like I mean, there are not everybody, but there are some politicians that will sign like. Uh, contracts that say I will never vote in favor of this or I will never change my mind about this and to me that's terrifying mm -hmm. it's terrifying that somebody would say that because that's basically them shutting down their 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 mind their open-mindedness right and foreclosing on something communication channel is closed right and yeah. and you know with the nature of how science works and society evolves culture evolves science is changing and more information is becoming available to me that's that's a horrible thing for someone to say um but then it's also really disturbing to me that again many members of the public want that from from somebody who's in charge of making decisions i don't want someone who's dogmatic who says i will never change right i want someone who who is able to make an evaluation in light of considering all the evidence, first of all, not just this is what I think, so I'm going to go for it, or this is what um, somebody told me, so, you know, end of story, I'm going to just believe that. But I want someone to stay open-minded to the possibility that they might be wrong or that new information might arise, new scientific findings might arise that necessitates a, a different approach or a change in, in perspective. And I think, again, currently politicians that have dared to do that like that's a point that we criticize them on we say oh you flip-flopped right you changed your perspective and we don't ask why right, for the most part we don't we don't say you know can you explain why you changed?" and we don't give that thoughtful consideration it's just used as like a counterpoint to this is why people shouldn't trust you and shouldn't vote for you because you changed your mind that's one thing i don't understand it's just like people accuse politician figures for something they have done when they were 17 mm -hmm. like that's another yeah. thing and again, I don't want to say that it's totally irrelevant. You know, I, I do think Depends it's a fair the, question yeah. to mm -hmm. say, well, why is it that you voted this way before and now you're voting this way? Or, you know, yeah, you have these really racist posts or you wore blackface as a 20 year old or whatever it was. You know, let's I, I do want to see how you have evolved since then or what has changed. So I think it's a fair question. But uh, yeah, I think we need to be careful not to immediately assume that you know, they're, they're changing their mind without any basis behind it, that it's just a random flip-flop and, oh, I'm not really thinking about this, just as carefully as we have yeah. to be to as not to assume that they couldn't have changed at all. Like when we hear about some guy was a racist, but something happened in his life and he actually fundamentally started to support mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the justice and everything. So it's actually a touchy story. But yeah. somehow we don't like those kind of things in political figures, right? Yeah, because um, we want everything to be neat. And, and again, simple. it goes back to our brains, right? Yeah, we, we want to simplify it. Yeah. We want an easy answer. We don't want to have to think too hard about it. But human beings are complicated. 
thinking life is messy, the way our brains work is messy, the way that we behave. Again, there's inconsistencies between our feelings and our thoughts and our behaviors and the implicit subconscious stuff and the all of that is necessarily messy. So anytime we, you know, try to, again, it goes back to anytime we try to take those quick shortcuts and make those easy judgments, I think we're doing a disservice, not just to the person, but, but to ourselves in the, in the long run. That's interesting because, um, it it almost go back to philosophy, right? The Mm -hmm. awareness of your daily life. Mm -hmm. Do you realize what you're doing and do you realize the mechanics behind your behavior? And once you achieve that level, you're really doing self-reflecting, then you will be a better human being on a daily basis. Yeah. I'm also, uh, very happy that you brought the political figures because then we, I started to see the hidden biases at the individual level and then as at the group level mm-hmm. and then start to have at even national wide level mm-hmm. and maybe eventually we have different garments in the world then they may have like those kind of conflicting their hidden biases and they don't they're not even willing to talk mm-hmm. that would have very very serious consequence so that's interesting so let's go back to confirmation biases but this time let's talk about it in teaching and learning, because that's where your yeah. your your research on, right? So, what are the typical confirmation biases from the student side, and from the teacher side? Well, it's I mean, har- I, which you think is harmful? Yeah, well, it really depends on the content, right? And it, it goes back to like students. Uh, so, I mean, some of it is content specific. I'll say that, and then some of it is just basic beliefs about like what is effective teaching and learning. And so the way I would frame it is it goes back to like the problem of students' prior beliefs and knowledge. And again, the the pros and cons of that, that our students, when they come to us in the classroom, they're not blank slates. And there are benefits to that and there are problems. The benefits is that it helps them, right, if they're drawing upon previous things that they've learned, that helps them make sense of what we're teaching them in in their class. So like the simplest example or, or a common example that I give is, you know, if you're teaching a... 200 level chemistry class it's good that students remember what they learned in chemistry 100 as opposed to starting from scratch and you know not having any idea Um, when we teach calculus it's good that students have a a basic uh, ability to and and even I would say automatic ability when it comes to like addition and subtraction that they don't have to think really hard about that and that they remember how to do algebra because if they didn't right they their ability to do calculus would would be impaired and it would take longer if they would ever be able to do it And so prior knowledge can be really beneficial because it helps us make meaning and make sense out of new stuff that we're learning. But again, because of confirmation bias, that prior knowledge can also be a barrier to learning if it prevents us from recognizing maybe limitations or gaps in our prior knowledge. Um, So again, it, it can depend on the content. So like if I have a very fundamental misconception about what causes the phases of the moon, right, or how the phases of the moon are explained, then that can prevent my ability to to learn more about that content in a class, um, unless my teacher actually takes the time to address that misconception, and and if I'm open to recognizing, like, oh, I thought it was this, but actually it's not caused by the the Earth's shadow or or clouds or something like that. Those are common misconceptions. Um, so you know the common misconceptions for. Uh, uh, one subject are not necessarily the common misconceptions for another subject. So that will always have some some specificity to it. Um, and I would challenge educators to think about what are common misconceptions that my students are coming with to my classroom about the content that I teach that I might need to take time where maybe, yeah, they learned this years ago, but if they never really understood it or if they have this belief that's not true, I need to take time to address that from the beginning. Otherwise, 
you know, it's like build, building on a, on a faulty foundation. They might not actually understand every, everything from that point on. Um, is that kind of making sense? From content-wise, yes. Yeah. Is that fair for me to say, like, this is almost when we make the comment, like, yeah, you're in college, but you still want to study in a high school way. Uh, it's related to that. So right. that brings me to, like, the other point is that a lot of what I focus on as an educational psychologist are misconceptions about effective teaching and learning that students bring to the classroom that can also be a barrier because of confirmation bias. It can prevent them from learning effectively or even trying different things. So study strategies is one of those. And students come to us oftentimes, um, and it makes sense. They, you know, they're, they've been in school for, what, 15 years or so by the time they ever come to us, 13 years or so, depending on their age, they have a, that much experience studying and most of them are fairly successful. They've done fairly well to get to this point. Most of them think that they know how to study effectively and they have the evidence of I've been successful to confirm that they know how to study effectively. But what we find is that most students, when we ask them, how do you study? They actually tend, the most common strategies they use tend to be the least effective. So the most top two strategies, any idea? Homework. Well, that's actually a... Or repetitive. Sort of. That's part of it. It actually matters the details. Top two things that students report doing are rereading their notes, oh. rereading their notes, um, and, uh, hi well, some of the tops are, are and like highlighting or otherwise rewriting their notes. Those are some of the top strategies that students use. But when we actually look at what correlates to performance those strategies tend to be the least effective mm -hmm. um, because you can do those things without actually consciously thinking very much about them because reading is, for most people, un unless you have a learning disability of some sort, reading is pretty automatic by this point. So just because you can read something doesn't mean you're actually understanding it, right? Just because you can copy your notes from one page to another page or copy something from the textbook to your notes doesn't mean you actually understand it. Um, so what tends to be more effective are things like self-testing or doing practice problems to actually prove that you understand it and that you can apply it or that you can do it. Um, but students are reluctant to do that because many times they've gotten away with like literally just rereading their notes. Um, and that's, that's been successful. So when they come to college and they're not doing well, it doesn't immediately occur to them that, oh, maybe it's my strategy. Right. Instead, they're actually more likely to see that as evidence of, oh, maybe I'm not smart enough or maybe I can't do this. Um, maybe I'm not. Maybe I should change majors because I thought I was good at math, but maybe I'm not so good at math. Um, and that can be problematic because, again, it, then their 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 failure, if that's their belief, if they continue to struggle, that serves as further confirmation of, oh, I guess I'm not a math person. I guess I can't do this instead of recognizing, wait a minute, maybe I just need to do something differently and try a different strategy. Sometimes they also develop like the professors not teaching in the right way until yeah. they go to every single class and so find every professor that teaches that way. Mm -hmm. So eventually you need to reflect on yourself to change the way you, you're studying. Right. That's or again, they'll, yeah. right, they'll have that bias of immediately blaming the professor. Uh, and then they just look at if they struggle, they continue to blame it on the professor as opposed to considering other possibilities. Like That's maybe it's because like I never go to class. Or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the hidden biases thing there. So, uh, yeah, that reminds me because if you just change a li little things, saying, like, don't reread your notes, but rewrite your notes mm -hmm. and make it shorter, suddenly your consciousness start to, to the consciousness start to participate in, right? Before, when you're copying, you can basically listen to the music, watch a movie, and copy uh -huh. without making mistakes. It's almost like you're trying to actually ask your hidden brain 
to to do this for me. Mm-hmm. While, exactly. You're rel- it's like autopilot. It's yeah. like the the driving home from work kind of thing. But for me, it's almost like um, so you're not learning because you're not adjusting adjusting your model. You're using your old model, mm-hmm. right? In order to learn, you basically need to reshape your model and make it different. Yeah. Right. And it should be challenging. That's another, I think, misconception that a lot of students have is that <coughs> learning should be easy. And if I'm anxious or if I'm uncomfortable or if I'm struggling with it, again, many students interpret that as a sign that it must be something wrong with me or it must be something wrong with the teacher instead of recognizing that, no, real learning, like you said, it requires you to reorganize some things or to change some things or to add some things and that a little bit of anxiety or at least some anxiety is not only good but necessary for that for that to occur. I'm not saying learning always needs to be really hard and that we need to be suffering all the time. There's a there's a, balance, a balance to be yeah. exactly there's a balance to be found. But I think that the bias that we have is that tendency to interpret any kind of discomfort as nope, uh, this is bad. Let's alleviate it. Let, let's fix that. And even teachers do that sometimes too. Like we're afraid to challenge our students too much because I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe we're afraid of how our students will evaluate us stuff, or, yeah. yeah. And so it, it, it kind of feeds into it in, in both sides sometimes. Yeah, to, to, as a teacher, I kind of feel like you need to have a strong mind to tell them, okay, when you do things in the new way, if you don't like it, it's not going to work mm-hmm. compared to just, yeah, everybody got an g- okay grade. Nobody's going to say anything bad to me, right? Right. It's, go- it's the constant battle of, like, you want to take you want to take care of their feelings. Meanwhile, you want to challenge or destroy the not destroy but challenge the feelings <laughs> a little challenge yeah. the feelings a little bit like i want you to feel good meanwhile i don't want you to feel good right because if you feel good you're relaxing and if you're relaxing you're only using 10 percent of your energy uh-huh. in your brain and or maybe i'm not doing my job as a professor if if all of this is super easy for you then am i actually helping you reach your potential interesting i tried that thing in class i find i'm a pretty hard grader mm-hmm. and i i do present a hard stuff in class i find people are most of, of the time and for mo- the majority of the students they like it mm-hmm. actually like it this is some experiences they never had before mm-hmm. and after a while you can see if they take my class for one semester the second semester they make the tra- some of them actually make the transition you'll find like before you were just like a high school kids you know do this and that mm-hmm. hanging out and uh, suddenly you become like a profession professional research assistant yeah and it's really fantastic to see people making those kind of transitions right but but i almost feel like for to do that the student it himself or herself has to battle their hidden biases before yeah well and how much of it you know who are the students that make it to that level and what about the others mm-hmm. right how much for those students that aren't successful that never make it to that next level or maybe that you don't even see in your classes because they've already convinced themselves that that's not for me i can't do that um, that I think is also really important to, to explore. Um, and it comes down to sometimes those, again, those biases that get in, get in our own way and can prevent us from, from being successful. So mm, this kind of, these kind of concepts like fighting your biases or growth mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Good. A really good connection there too. Yeah. Um, it dates all the way back. Not that I mean, we're battling the biases planted in previous yeah. Time, right? Like high school. And the high school perfect battle is the thing from junior high. Uh-huh. The junior high battles from. Right. It's a lifetime of, and of the experiences. And finally, I battle from parenting. Mm-hmm. So through this process, um, 
are, are, are any of these periods more pr critical than the others? And uh, what are our responsibilities as parents and teachers in this in this process? Yeah, I, I mean, there is some some debate about like, I don't want to go so far as to say this is definitely the most critical period, but there is a lot of research to suggest those early formative years are particularly sensitive because that's when those prototypes essentially are, are being established, right? What you are initially exposed to. And then again, confirmation bias kicks in and you get reinforcement. You start looking for things that fill, that fit your expectations and that it gets more difficult to change the, the longer we've held a belief. Because again, then we start developing years and years of evidence to support whatever belief that it is th that we have. So those early years are, are really, uh, really important. Uh, some are there any suggestions you have for parenting? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it, it kind of depends on what specific biases that, that we're talking about. In I mean, if, if it comes to like growth mindset, I think making sure that we're praising our, our kids based on things like effort and their, their processes and their, you know, how they're solving problems and how they're thinking as opposed to just focusing on outcomes and doing well. Um, that really helps to shift the focus on, okay, I just have to look good to other people and it's more about, you know, my own thinking and it's okay to change and it's okay to be unsure. Um, even things like praising risk taking when it comes to learning a as a kid, like that's okay. I don't, I don't care that you didn't get the right answer. I'm, I'm really proud of you for tackling that, that really big problem and, and persevering, you know, and that's what I think is more important. Not to say that we should totally ignore, you know, achievements. Um, it's okay to, you know, uh, to, to praise achievements. But again, it needs to be more than only reserving praise for like when they do well and asking those questions of, well, why are they doing well? Is it because they're taking the easy route all the time? In which case, maybe we shouldn't be praising them for that. And maybe we should be pushing them, uh, you know, to challenge themselves or we should be challenging them a little bit more. Um, and I think the earlier we can institute those kind of, of processes and, and praise that type of praise, for example, that that helps to reinforce that, you know, that love for learning and that willingness to to challenge yourself and to take those risks. And so basically that kind it's, of stuff. it's OK if you make mistakes. Basically, that's just the yeah. message, right? You yeah. You can only learn when you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You don't make, make mistakes, you don't learn. There you go. Yeah. Interesting. So. Um, one one struggle I have with with growth mindset is if I give it the time and I I, I welcome I I, 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 I I encourage you to embrace mistakes and challenges and harder stuff, but eventually your performance will be assessed in yeah. a very rigid way. Yeah. And that's the part I personally cannot overcome. That is like if yeah. you if every grade is given this way, what's the point for fighting the system? Yeah. Unless the system change, but I don't see any way the system <laughs> can change at all. Yeah. And that's a really good question or point is that there there is oftentimes this disconnect between what parents and teachers say and then at the end of the day what they're actually doing. Um and yeah, I don't I don't have a simple answer to that. There are some people that will argue for that reason that we need total reform and, and revolution in the way that our educational system is structured. Is because that even possible or have it has it happened before? A total there, reform? Um, in the United States education, I, I wouldn't say I've seen a, a massive reform. I think, or, I mean, there's always been changes and kind of the pendulum swings in both directions where we go more on like, 
I don't know, critical thinking and creativity. And then people say, oh, no, we're falling behind on like basic stuff. And then we swing back in the other direction where we go back to the core basics and standardization and things like that. So there's always some variation. But as far as like radical reform, I wouldn't say that we've seen that. Um, over time, we've definitely become much more uh, focused on standards, right, and standardized tests and high-stakes testing, evidence-based practices. And some of that is good, and some of that has these really detrimental effects because at the end of the day, like you said, we are focused more on evaluating performance and do you know this and how much do you know, and there's less emphasis on, like, progress and effort. And um, so, again, there are some people that will say just our system, because it is focused on standardized testing in this country, at least at the, the lower levels, that that in and of itself is the root of the problem. And it doesn't matter how much we praise effort and things like that. If at the end of the day, that's how we're deciding what students progress and, and how and they progress and, and what's taught and exact and right. And why are teachers doing it? Because they're required to do that. And it's this trickle down effect. I will say there's other countries that are doing other things. And, and it's not that I'm saying it would necessarily work the same way here. Um, but Finland, for example, has often been used as like a counterexample where in many ways their educational system is exactly the opposite of ours, where there aren't these massive standardized tests that, you know, are multiple choice and did you get the right answer. They do have some tests, but they're much more open-ended, like critical thinking essays that students are writing that don't have, you know, yes or no answer, but literally were about they're being evaluated on their ability to integrate sources and, and provide uh, quality explanations to support their points, et cetera. Um, but I would also, so, so I guess what I was getting to, there are some people that would argue radical reform is necessary or otherwise, you know, we're never going to make the impact that we want to. But I would also argue that, you know, I think we unfairly sometimes dichotomize like effort versus performance and evaluation and people are immediately uh, oftentimes want to point to grades as being inherently bad and inherently problematic. And I don't think that's true because I think grades themselves can be structured in a way that they incorporate things like effort and progress. And again, for me, I think there's a balance to be found between effort and progress and proficiency or, or competency. Um, and that, that both are important. Again, in our educational system, do we overemphasize the proficiency and competency piece? I think absolutely. But I don't think the answer is to throw that out the window and say, oh, we only care about, you know, effort and, and progress. So like an, you know, an extreme example that I often give in classes, if I go to a doctor, um, I want to know that they have a degree. I don't want a doctor that just tried really hard and, you know, barely got through medical school. But, yeah, they, they're not afraid to make mistakes and they make mistakes and they're learning and they're getting better. I also want a doctor that's able to demonstrate that they know, you know, they know what they're doing and they're able to perform that surgery, you know, well, as opposed to well, I'm just going to give it my best shot here. Um, at the same time, though, you know, I, I think effort is matters, too. And I don't want a doctor that was necessarily just able to pass all those tests and say, you know, check off all the bo all the boxes, but doesn't necessarily have that that thoughtfulness and that willingness to again, admit when they're wrong or to reconsider evidence, which is more on the, the growth mindset kind of side of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Just think out loud, actually. When I was trying to fill out, you know, nowadays we have those kind of online application systems for recommendation letters, mm -hmm. but it's basically not a letter. It's just they send you the student information and ask you to rate mm -hmm. uh, proficiency in yeah. programming language, okay? 
uh, ability to communicate peop- with people five to uh, zero to five, yeah. and uh, ability to work independently, and ability to handle struggle and difficulty, mm-hmm. ability to find original or find creativity or motivations. I find myself really comfortable to actually select numbers in this. Mm-hmm. So this can also almost serve as a grade for soft skills. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, or even not even skills, just like a human being, human component. And then the rigid part, which is required by the standard of the skill. And you can have two, two set of grade mm-hmm. presented to the system. And depending on the major, you should actually weigh them differently. For example, like doctors. Okay, you can mm-hmm. be a nice person, you can be a jerk, but you can really perform nice surgery mm-hmm. and you treat your job carefully, great. Or you have really good personal skills, but maybe you're not so good in algebra. Mm-hmm. Depending on which major you're in, mm-hmm. it may be okay, it may be better to do things in this way. Yeah, That's almost feel like a, a really nice way because it's, I don't think it's feasible. For example, like the Finland example, there's such a small, they have such a small teacher and student ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Your teacher have all the time. Teachers and also get paid a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> to do this. <laughs> There's a lot more, uh, you know, the, their healthcare system, like all these things yeah, that benefits, make it a little yeah. bit easier for teachers to do that, yeah. Yeah, so so for mass education system, which means one teacher need to handle 20, mm-hmm. or grade 20, mm-hmm. 30, 50, mm-hmm. I almost start to think this is probably the only way we can put a number on the human side. Right. And again, it's a, it's about that, that balance a little bit. Although I do want to challenge a little, I agree that maybe at the end of the day, having a surgeon who knows his stuff and how to do that surgery might be more important than, than the personable skills. But there's also a lot of research out there that suggests that at least at this point in time throughout history, we've de-emphasized the personal stuff that's actually also directly related to patient outcomes, such as like how well they recover from or how how well they recover from that the surgery. attitude of the doctor. So yep. we still have to be careful that we're not like okay, maybe in theory this one could be a little bit higher, but that doesn't mean that this other side is unimportant. So again, it's it's about both. And you're right. The challenge is, you know, with standardized tests, again, this is a point that I try to make. I'm not a huge fan of standardized tests, at least in the way that they're used personally. But there is value behind them. It's a way to get like a quick judge of, of or an estimate of what students are learning. The whole idea of it being standardized is trying to ensure that all of our students are, are getting some consistency or some level of, of quality of instruction. And fairness. Right. To be try to be fair. Um, you know, the whole th- No Child Left Behind Act, you know, it's it's rooted in this idea of we want to try to be fair. Um, but again, it's not it's not a cure-all. And that's where it gets problematic is people put way too much emphasis on these test scores and don't put enough emphasis on on the other the other things. And and so, again, I think it's at least currently it's very much out of balance with with how we're doing that. And, and what is what kind of outcomes are tied to performance standards and whether or not schools get funding or whether or not teachers get retained. That, I think, is, is really problematic. But I, I wouldn't say personally that the answer, again, is, oh, we just throw this out. Because if we throw this out, then there's this question of feasibility and, and practicality. And, and the bias of teachers. Yeah, and again, then it, it opens more door for that, for that bias. So and, and it's the same thing, you know, with grading in our classrooms. I don't think exams are the enemy. Uh, at the end of the day, I do want to make sure that my students can demonstrate that they know this concept. Even things like rote memorization, again, oftentimes gets a very bad reputation, like, no, we shouldn't be doing rote mem- memorization. 
And actually, I think there's absolutely a place for rote memorization. There's some research that suggests that, you know, even if, if we want students to think creatively and critically in a field, they have to have automatized, we've kind of come full circle, circle here, automatized certain skills, and they need to know what the definitions are, and they need to know, you know, those basic things before they are able to, to move on and, and apply that and expand upon that. So again, I think sometimes we have this belief, oh, it, no, it's either rote memorization or it's all this. And I think, no, they can go hand in hand. Again, though, the key is, you know, when you're designing those exams or when you're giving grades, you have to critically reflect on that. How much of this is just memorization and going through the motions and automatic processing versus how much of this am I, uh, am I counting for things like students' effort and how much they're actually growing and, and what they're thinking and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and so you can incorporate effort into, you know, like class participation. That's a way that effort is incorporated into that final evaluation so that it, it does help to bring a little bit more consistency if we go back to promoting growth mindset, like putting your money where your mouth is. It can't, I don't think it can count. You can't, it, it, I think students sometimes would say, oh, effort should matter more. Um, you know, if I, if I've had students either say or imply like as long as I come to class and I do everything I should get an A right regardless of how I actually (laughs) perform I don't think very many students say that but I've definitely experienced that people do that actually in uh, Cornell University just say hey um, because people are talking about grading inflation right Uh they're just like what do you think would take a person to get a B they say I show up and I show up uh, I show up in class I do all the homeworks I don't have to do them right right and then I show up to office hours, I should get a B. Right. But then if you go to any bulletins, for example, uh, probably this is too much, but hard work, like D means satisfactory. Mm-hmm. That means you can get a degree. Mm-hmm. C means average. Yeah. And B means good. Good means you are better than average right. already. Let alone A is supposed to be, it's supposed to be, even my grading criteria is supposed to be superior achievement. Yeah. Not but only yeah. you did all everything I asked you to do, you impressed me. Mm-hmm. That's basically the idea. But for nowadays, I think people, depending on where they are in which location of the, the country, right. they have different cultures regarding grade. Right. And a lot of students have that perception that if I'm not getting an A, that means I'm failing. And again, it's it's not, why do they have that perception? It's because society, we, we impose that on them in many cases. You know, at the end of the day, when we're evaluating someone for graduate school or for a scholarship, one of the per- first things we look at is that objective criteria to make a quick decision to narrow down the, f- the pool we look at their gpa we look at their test scores you know and that's it's a quick way to to winnow it down from a thousand applications to you know maybe 200 and then we look at the more or at least we tend to look at the more subjective softer softer skills and things like that um so there is some reason for students to be concerned if i'm not getting an a then i could be automatically disqualified from from some of these other opportunities um, One thing I found difficulty <coughs> in nowadays kids, it's very rare that people think about what they deserve and what they want. Yeah, They, they kind of mix these two things to be the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. I need to get a B. Yeah. That's why you need to give me a B. That's why, uh, that's that because I need that thing for a scholarship. Mm-hmm. If you think it reversely, that means probably you don't deserve the scholarship. Yeah. Right? Maybe, but I mean, that's what's hard is, as you know, as you said, you were referring like college to college, the grades mean different things, but even classroom to classroom, the grades mean different things. Right. So for me, I I really do try to make an A. 
I'm not the strict, I wouldn't say I'm the strictest grader, but I really do try to make an A meaningful. Like if you get an A, that's because not only are you demonstrating competence, but you are demonstrating significant effort to 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 give me that competence. So again, my exams, uh, and again, I'm not claiming to be perfect in case anybody's listening to that. I'm Nobody not claiming is. I have yeah. it figured out, <laughs> but I tried it, my exams and my gradings, like all the assignments, you know, added up. I try to make it so that it's a, a balance between demonstration of, of competence and mastery, but also effort and, you know, those other, those other pieces. Um, but that, that's, again, that's the tricky thing is that there is no, like, no, like how much should effort count? How do you decide that? Like, should effort be 80% of the grade? Should effort be 50% of the grade? Should effort only be 10% of the grade? How do you weigh that with competence? And that's, I think, you know, something that every individually professors have to, or instructors have and, to and reflect you know, individual on. individual instructors across different level of classes will have a different balance rate. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And depending on the semester, depending on he grow as an educator, yeah. he will shift his philosophy or her philosophy, right? Yeah. So, and, yeah. It, you know, and, and again, students that are asking for that A, Again, part of it, I think, is an issue on, on their side. Like, we need to help them understand what grades mean and how and grade inflation and how that's problematic just because you want this grade doesn't mean you necessarily deserve that. And, and we need to maintain the integrity of the grading system. But on the other hand, there's, again, there's some fairness to students asking that because of the system that we live in and the society that we live in where they know they will be evaluated by that and they know that in some places they're going to be competing against students who did get higher grades that maybe weren't the, challenged as go much. Go to Madison for engineer school and one coming from platform at Platteville and mm -hmm. one coming from UWL and we have different grading systems then. Right, how, so how it, the, they could have exactly yeah. the same GPA but it doesn't necessarily doesn't have the yeah. same meaning. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I don't have an easy answer to that. I think that's something we need to reflect more on as, as individuals but also as a society and thinking about our processes and how we're evaluating people and how do we take that into consideration. Not only how do we take those differences into consideration but how much weight do we do we place on things like that? Um, and it, I mean, it also connects back to, again, the, the our earlier discussion about biases and discrimination in employment. Like one way that we try to balance is that is because we know that certain groups, the research says, are disadvantaged compared to others. So as far as like equitable decisions when it comes to hiring, that's where like, uh, I don't know, policies like affirmative action come into play. Right. Where the equitable thing is to not treat all students or all applicants or students equally, because we know that it's harder for students from this group, for example, to succeed. So at the end of the day, if we have two applicants with like very similar profiles, we're going to give it to these people because we know, you know, that that research says they're less likely to to they're not starting from the same point right or they don't have the same level of access to resources etc and so I think it's analogous to like the example that you gave if I'm evaluating two student applications and they have the same GPA which student do I, I give it from well I, I, I don't again I don't have an easy answer for that but it's the same thing with business right you put KPIs or key performance index on everything once you start to quantify things in a number that as time goes by, you see everybody become homogenous. Mm -hmm. It's like everybody meeting the same standard. Yeah. But the moment you start actually, but but that's always a simplified version of what's going on. Right. Once you value in the human part, you start to see the diversities of different standards. Mm -hmm. That's actually what what makes 
makes the whole world so interesting because you can go to a university that take one standard, and if you don't like it, that means the university is probably not for you. Mm -hmm. So you can actually go to the university or you can go to the company which aligns with your value. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of it, right? Okay, so um, you mentioned about raw memory. One question I actually kind of randomly had was hidden biases is kind of like a quicker and simplified model to process information, right? Mm -hmm. Does it have anything to do with creativity? Do hidden biases have anything to do with creativity? Because if I think about this, right, when you, tr you, when you, when you have some scientific or artistic discoveries, sometimes it's not just a process like step one, two, three, four, constantly. Mm -hmm. constantly. It's almost like I got inspiration. Right, after like that insight, uh-huh. But it has moment. to have to be after I memorize or have done a lot of stuff. They, uh, somehow they just magically come together. Mm -hmm. right, so I'm just wondering, like, is it because I have so many simplified model putting together something higher just emerge or manifest from there? Possibly. So when we're talking about creativity, w sometimes we distinguish between convergent thinking and divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is, I think it's m most often associated with creativity. That's like thinking outside the box, coming up with ideas that, ha that are totally unique that other people haven't had. Convergent thinking, it's similar, but convergent thinking is more of that like aha moment that you said where it's you can it's not that you're thinking in a totally different way, but you're able to put the pieces together and to see a connection that maybe nobody else sees. So like the example that I always give is um, Apollo 13, the movie or the mission. And there's the scene where they have to find a way to fit a, a round a, what is it a square peg into a round hole it could be the opposite uh, and, and it's they and they have to work with the resources available right and it's kind of like solving this puzzle it has an answer or, or riddles that's an example of convergent thinking um, so you know if I say uh, I don't know Marjorie and Martha were born on the same day at the same time in the same hospital to the same parents but they're not twins how is that possible? That require there is an answer, right? But it requires convergent thinking. It requires you to like hone in on the one correct response. Um, whereas divergent thinking would be like the way that we test that might be: tell me all the, tell me what you could do with a paperclip, and just write down all your ideas, and then I would compare how many original, totally original ideas you came up with compared to what other people's. So maybe you said five things that nobody else even came up with. I could also look at how uh, elaborate your ideas are, how flexible your thinking was. So, you know, if I said, um, if I gave you a bunch of circles and said, draw, like, draw as whatever you want, and every circle was a different face, well, it's not very flexible, right? So that's like another way we measure divergent thinking. Um, where was I going with that? Is this oh, so how is that hidden biases or so, a, a yeah, quicker model? I, I don't know. I, like, I can't say I've, I've ever read. It's an interesting question. I can't say I've read research that is specifically tied bias to creative thinking. But as I was thinking about convergent thinking, I think bias can absolutely come into play and prevent that from happening. So again, like with riddles, um, bias is oftentimes what prevents us from being able to solve that riddle. So another common example is, um, a mother and her son were in a really bad car accident and they were both rushed to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. Uh, when the son was wheeled into the, the surgical room or the operating room, the surgeon says, oh, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How is that possible? Do you know the answer? No, not, not on top of my mind. Why, why can you, if you don't mind me like putting you to the test, why is it that, like, what are you thinking? How, why is that not possible? 
Can I say that again? I don't quite follow. Okay, a mother and a son. They're uh-huh. in a, a driving, and they're in a car accident, a uh-huh. really bad car accident. They're both rushed to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. When the boy is wheeled into the, sur- the operating room, the surgeon says, wait, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And the question is, why? Well, yeah, how is that possible? Most people are stumped by that. Why? I mean, he can be his father, right? Oh, shoot, I messed it up. Oh, I messed it up. I messed up the story. Sorry. The actual riddle is a father and his son are in a car accident, oh, oh, and the oh, boy oh. is, ah, see, I messed that up. <laughs> okay. Can we start over? <laughs> okay, this riddle. Yeah, but we got an idea, yeah. Anyways, the reason why, so it's a father and a son are in a really bad accident. They're rushed to the hospital. The surgeon says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. Um, most people get stumped by that because they automatically assume the surgeon is the man. Male. The okay, de- yeah. I see. Okay. I really, I totally did that the opposite. This <laughs> is why I'm horrible at giving anecdotes and examples in class. I have to write them down or else I mess up. Um, so that might have been more effective have I, had I done it the right way. But for now, I'm just asking you to trust me. That's a common riddle that stumps a lot of people. I totally because, get it. Yeah. And it's because of that implicit bias that we have that when we think of a surgeon, we immediately think of a man. And even though after you hear it, it's so obvious, of course it could have been his mother. Many people can't figure it out. right? And so that would be an example of where those biases actually prevent us from thinking more creatively Nothing um, creates in that the blind situation, spot, right? Yeah, it's exactly the blind spot. Yeah. spot, and that can lead to you know, again, that lack of convergent thinking, um, or otherwise functional fixedness. That's another uh, kind of term from that literature. So another riddle or another puzzle that we use to measure convergent thinking is called the candle problem, and we'll see how well I can describe this or if I mess this up too. But you're given a box of matches, a candle. No, no, no. You're. G- <laughs> <laughs> this is what I said. You're giving a candle, a box of tacks, and a, and a match. And you're asked, how can you affix this candle to the wall? So your task is to light the candle and to affix it to the wall. And again, this is a lot easier with the actual materials provided or, or at least an, an image. Um, but many people really struggle with this because in order to solve this task, you have to escape functional fixedness and you have to repurpose um, the tack box. And you actually just use the tax box as like a shelf and then you tack it to the wall and put the candle on it. Most people will try to like somehow stick the tack through the candle into the wall and that doesn't work. Or they might try to melt part of the candle and stick it to the wall that way and that usually doesn't work because it can't support its weight. Um, and so again, it gets back to the reason why most people can't do that is because they see the tap, they have the tax box or the tack box, but in their minds, they're only thinking of it as that is a tack box, as opposed to thinking of, wait a minute, that could also be a shelf um, for the candle that I can tack into the so wall. That's almost related to our categorical thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. right. We, we are taught that this is a box. The box is meant to hold things. And it, it just prevents us sometimes, or at least delays us and slow us down, slows us down before we're able to think, oh, wait, I could use that in a different way and solve this problem. Again, it goes back to the Apollo 13. Uh, none of those, those products or those, those materials that they had available were designed to do that, right, or to fit that hole. But it requires, okay, maybe if I can combine them in this different way or take this other gadget that does something totally different, maybe I could use that for this new purpose now. I almost feel like um, we memorize, or as we grow older, we we know a lot of hidden rules mm-hmm. in our mind. Like, for example, like when Columbus tried to actually put, fi- put the egg 
and make it stand straight. Mm -hmm. I would assume you cannot break the egg. Mm -hmm. That's almost like a hidden rule, but nobody said that though. So he break the egg and just make it, make that thing stand. Yeah. Right? yeah, it's the same thing. So and are, are these kind of hidden rules similar or exactly the same as hidden bias? I think it it uh, they operate in a very similar but way. They're not, they're, but right? they're not they're the same thing. They're these automatic assumptions that we make and things that we've learned. These automatic skills, beliefs, whatever it is that we've learned over time. Um, that again, in some ways, can be really beneficial because it saves us time and allows us to move on, take the next step forward but in some other ways can also prevent us from making new discoveries. And that's where that, remember when I said um, there are some people that say that rote memorization is necessary for creative thinking. That's why there are some people that also believe it, it's not, like it could be inhibitory to, to critical thinking. So again, it's kind of like this balance of, okay, in order to make new scientific discoveries, you have to have this, this foundation of science, but then there's also this because you've been trained to think this way, that that could also be your your greatest enemy and the greatest barrier to you thinking creatively. And we got examples for both, right? Somebody yeah. was so well trained and he, he built on whatever evidence had before and eventually mm -hmm. achieved something. You also got somebody who was originally a blue collar and stepped into this science scientific field, but somehow he didn't follow the rule. Right. And suddenly something comes up. And right? so that's the beauty of it. And even like with music, I mean, with any field, I think we could say that. Like oftentimes it's the rule breakers or it's the people that weren't trained. Right, that end up doing these really cool things that we end up celebrating. And uh, you have to wonder, like, had they gone through schooling or traditional schooling and education in the way that other people had, would they have actually been that? Like, would they have still done that? Interesting. So I, uh, we're hitting the time mark soon, but mm -hmm. I have a final question here. That is uh, with the confirmation bias thing. It's so difficult for us to do self-reflection, number one, because of the self-awareness, mm -hmm. number two is because of our emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. So how is this hidden bias thing related to emotion? Oh, it's absolutely involved in there. So um, our, our brain, our body responds to being told that we're wrong or being presented with contradictory information about other people or about ourselves in much the same way that it responds to, if we're walking through the woods, a bear crossing our path. And that's the fight or flight response. So that's the fear system. Is yeah, that like adrenaline rush, our heart starts beating a little bit faster, we might get a little bit sweaty, we might start breathing faster. It also creates a tunnel vision. And again, it's advantageous in certain situations and not so much in others. In that situation where there's a bear in front of you, Right, it's a survival mechanism that your body prepares itself to either again fight off this this threat, this physical threat, or to run away to safety, and that's all you can think of in that moment. And that again is it's a good thing that you're focused on that bear and you're not focused on, you know, worried about what am I going to have for dinner tonight, right? It's a good thing that we have that tunnel vision, but when it comes to like having that same response to being told that we're wrong. Right. That same tunnel vision is what, again, prevents us from actually being open minded uh, and actually being able to think a little bit more critically or a little bit more um, creatively and to consider other perspectives, et cetera. Um, and so we you know, we might not have the same level of fight or flight response, just like with physical threats. You know, if it's a, a snake, your fight or flight response might be triggered at a, at a higher rate than mine, depending on our comfortability with snakes. Um, the same thing is true with, with information and the, and the topic. You know, some things are more or less threatening to us, depending on what it is. 
if it's a belief that's being challenged that is really central to your sense of self, like really important to your identity, and or something, a belief that you've held for a really long time, then you're more likely to have that really negative, strong emotional reaction to someone telling you you're wrong or, again, encountering some kind of contradictory information. Um, so it's absolutely the emotional part is 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 an inherent part of this of this thing, too. I know sometimes, again, we like to dic- same part of our brains. We like to categorize and dichotomize stuff. We sometimes separate emotion and cognition but they are so interwoven and interlapping that it, you know, we do that for, for our like useful purposes and just to make it easier to talk about those things. But the two things go, go hand in hand. And so when it comes to like intervening and and doing better, again, one of the, the first things that as, as individuals is I think we need to be better at that self-awareness of recognizing when we're feeling that emotional response or that defensiveness and reminding ourselves, okay, I'm, I'm feeling this way. I need to, I need to calm down here and I need to take my time and I need to really think about this. That could actually be that cue that we need that, oh, this is something that I really need to unpack as opposed to just using that as a cue of shutting down and nope, not going to think about it anymore. Or as opposed, I mean, just again, getting defensive and, and saying, you know, I'm not going to talk. How dare you ask me that? Right. To me, that's a sign. If I respond that way, that's a sign that, okay, I need to be extra careful with this and maybe be an even better listener, right? Or maybe explore different perspectives even more carefully when it comes to this because of how emotionally charged it is for me. Interesting. So probably it all starts from listening. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's so it's again, it's our responsibility as an individual. But I think it also comes from the the person that you're talking to or, or the educator in that case. As educators, we should remember that, that we're more likely to have people who are that are that our approach matters. Right. So if I come right out and say you're wrong, wrong, that's stupid. How could you ever believe that? Not that we necessarily would be that overt about it. Um, the minute we make someone feel stupid or imply that there's no way I can understand why you believe that and you're a bad person for believing that, we've lost them, right? We're, it's going to automatically inhibit th- our ability to educate them from that point on, right? So we also need to be careful as educators with trying to approach these conversations or teaching topics in a way that is a little bit less threatening. Again, that doesn't mean we can't, again, it goes back to that, like doesn't mean we can't challenge our students, but it's finding that balance is, is really important because if we, if we are a little bit too aggressive about it, we might otherwise, like we are contributing to that, to the problem of, of them being able to learn and to stay open-minded. I really like your comments because it comes both way, not yeah. just from the student's way, but also from a teacher. There are something we can do as two sides or two parties mm-hmm. and working together to make this thing work. Yeah. Right. And that and that's one of the reasons why I teach about these mental limits and, and about bias as being natural is because I'm trying to help students understand that, yeah, if you're feeling this way or if you have this reaction, that's not the problem. It's not having that reaction isn't the problem. It's or, or what dictates wh- or having that bias is not the problem or what dictates what kind of person you are. It's what are you willing to do with that, mm-hmm. right? And are you willing to actually take that step back, at least from time to time? Especially it's not even your fault. 
right. right. My, yeah, not, again, not, it's that. Not 100%. Right. Yeah, we don't want to take away all totally personal reasonable. accountability, yeah. but yeah. it's also about, again, that kind of empathy and understand. Like, I understand why you think that. Mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about misconceptions in, in our domain or in, in the field, the subjects that we teach, or whether we're talking about social biases and stereotypes. Um, again, I, there's a fine line. I'm not saying we need to be patient all the time. Like there are some times where we have to take care of ourselves too. And I don't have the patience to, to listen to your racist rhetoric or whatever. Like sometimes I think it's okay to step away for your own self-preservation and like your own well-being. sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we need to listen to that from other people and that we necessarily have to be patient. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, if we're really want people to change, like we have to try at least sometimes to meet them where they are and to be at least a little patient with, you know, if we want to pull them forward and move them forward with meeting them where they are, even if it is ugly or wrong. If you do it in the, in in a nice way, you guys become partners, right? Yeah. For this, for the common goal. Right. Instead of we are fighting each other. Like I want this, but you want a different thing uh-huh. then there's no way we can work together and it's yeah and it goes back to the you know when we talked about public discourse and politics and things like that um it's really easy to just you know dismiss somebody i can't believe you believe that you're a horrible person you did that thing you're a horrible person that's really easy to do but again is is that going to help them become a better person no interesting yeah, so next time, probably when I will see something like that, my personal approach is that number one, if I'm listening, I repeat what other people say to make sure I understand it. Yep, that's a really good strategy. This is what I hear. Yeah, or this is how I, I hear you. This is what I think you're feeling. This is, yeah. And almost 50% of the time, they will say, you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's an important, right. Exactly. Uh, a second thing is probably just almost it's my instinct that just like every time a student says something which sounds like, let's use the word stupid. Mm-hmm. We, at college level, we shouldn't be doing this. Right. But automatically, you just follow up with why and let them explain themselves. Mm-hmm. The same thing where I, where I, I, I say something, some people feel shocked that I will actually automatically s- explain uh-huh. why instead of saying, hey, you see something, you use that to judge me, but let's hear about my reason. Let's hear about your reason first. Right. And that can help you, again, to be a more, not that we always have to go into it with this agenda of I'm going to change your mind. Sometimes it really is just trying to better understand other people, right? Um, but even from an educational perspective, that makes that can give you a way to be a more effective educator. If you understand why someone believes what they believe, that gives you a more direct target for, okay, now I see where you're coming from, so let me explain you know, why that thinking is inadequate or you know, what the problem, where it is that you're making that mistake, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, again, sometimes it might not be a, a you're making a mistake. Let me change your mind. Um, but even with you know arguments, that's the same thing. the The best way to have a, I when I say argument, I I think of it, I have a positive connotation with that. It's like discussion. that means we're discuss right. right. That means we're discussing, and there's the potential that we can learn from each other, and either one of us could change. Um, but again, as part of that, that necessarily involves really listening and responding to what each other are saying as opposed to just both people saying this is what i believe this is what i believe okay interesting well we hit the <coughs> we talk a lot i know this the, i was worried we might not be able to fill that time and up, that was all very informational and thanks so much i for enjoyed joining the us. conversation thank yeah. you and again I, I love what you're doing and um i love your curiosity ab- about these other subjects that maybe i'm guessing you weren't 
trained in it like from an educational standpoint so. no i i really like you know talking with people who know their stuff and i know nothing about it. it's almost like i'm getting things for free <laughs> yeah although uh, you, you brought up so many good connections to your experiences so i wouldn't even say like this isn't stuff that you don't know about all of this stuff is is relevant to your daily interactions your interactions in the classroom with politics like that's the thing is that's interesting yeah and, that, and that's definitely make my life richer uh-huh i agree same here and and i learned some things too so cool thank you nice. so much thank you